Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we are going to be looking at the benefit of investing in conflict, particularly in the Middle East, looking predominantly at Libya, Yemen, and Syria. Here with us, no better to discuss this actually, is Sami Hamdi, who is the Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. Now, Sami is an experienced geopolitical risk consultant who advises blue-chip clients on volatile political and business environments. He has extensive experience in the region, having been a television reporter and talk show host for over 10 years. So I'm very happy to have him, as you can also catch him on multiple clips on Al Jazeera and TRT World News. So, Sammy, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure, and I really am keen on discussing this notion of investment in conflict. We've had several listeners wanting us to dive in further, given we've covered an episode discussing the benefits of uh, impact investment, uh, given that the fact that in 2017, the International Red Cross Committee launched what they're calling Humanitarian Impact Bonds, or HIB, to transform the way vital services for people with disabilities are financed in conflict-hit countries. And this was mainly created to basically encourage social investment from the private sector to support the ICRC's health programs in places such as Iraq, Libya, and so on and so forth. But let's really look, I really wanted to look at these key three conflicts that we have going on right now, Libya, Yemen, and Syria. And first of all, I really wanted to ask more about their statuses because some are arguing that the conflicts in these countries are subsiding even in even in in yemen they're indicating this and i'm of the argument that that is not quite so before we dive in into investing in conflict can we say that these countries are indeed conflict zones Uh, that's a very good question i think with every war there are the the highs and lows there are the ebbs there are the tides there are the there's momentum uh, there are stalemates and the like, and I think each of these conflicts is in a, a different stage. Also, the nature of warfare in modern-day warfare is not like the olden days where you could decide uh, wars in a single battle on the hills or the plains or the like. Uh, guerrilla warfare is, has become the trademark of much of these conflicts, hit and run and the like. And this causes very significant problems, not just on the political, but also on the economic level. If you look at, for example, uh, countries such as Sudan, which is a bit outside, one of the biggest issues that it had when it was constructing its oil pipelines was the hit-and-run operations that were taking place uh, in the east. And no matter how much force 
the Sudanese government or how much protection it would try to use to protect those pipelines, these hit and run mechanisms are very difficult uh, to handle. If we take Libya, for example, Libya, the conflict is ongoing. However, whereas before we could say it was between East and West, the focus on terrorism and migration has led both of the parties to concentrate their forces more towards the South in order to try to buy European support, to buy international clout, to buy some political credibility, whether it's with the Italians, whether it's with the French, in order to be seen as the best alternative to what is in Libya, in order to curry favor with these countries so that they would support them in any future discussion with regards to forming a government. So it's become almost a strange situation whereby the sides don't have to defeat each other. They are simply trying to defeat the parties that the French and the Italians want defeated so that they can secure their own security and the Libyan parties in turn can take the greatest share of whatever government becomes formed. With Iraq, the matter is a bit deeper, mainly because it's essentially between this global feud between the Iranians and the U.S. The Iraqi government lacks its own sovereignty to form its own government. We see, for example, in this dispute over the appointing the interior minister, Falah al-Fayyad, we see that the Iranians are heavily in favor of promoting him and the U.S. are heavily against promoting him. Why? Because the interior ministry uh, was beefed up since 2003 because... The then Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, uh, feared that uh, there would be a military coup because the army was being trained by the U.S., so he sought to beef up the interior ministry as a countermeasure. So essentially, whoever rules the interior ministry uh, has full control of the security forces. So there is this really big uh, conflict taking place here, and then there is the ISIS dynamic every now and then that pops out that seems to continue to ensure that Iraq remains in a very serious uh, security situation. With Yemen, it's a far more complicated. With Yemen, the biggest issue is that there is no clear strategy as to what everybody wants. So long story short, you have a national dialogue that took place. Everybody agreed on a government. The Houthis went back to Saada. They changed their minds. They took up weapons. They allied with Ali Abdullah Saleh. They stormed cities. They took the capital. They took most of the other cities. And then Saudi decided that if the international community wasn't going to get involved to essentially stem the Houthi spread, then it would get involved. And now we have this awkward situation whereby the United Nations doesn't want to say that it's given up on the national dialogue agreement, but it's not willing to invest the resources to force the Houthis to respect the national dialogue. So Yemen is more of this situation whereby, because it's a stalemate, the United Nations is waiting for some sort of change in the military dynamics that might allow the parties to come to peace. Essentially, in, in short terms, is the Houthis are saying, look, we've taken all this territory. Why do we need to concede it? And the Saudis are saying, guys, there was a national dialogue before. Why don't you implement it? And the United Nations is saying, look, guys, I know you have your differences, but can we at least stop the war and find another way to deal with it? And both parties are screaming, no, there is no other way to deal with it. So I think with regards to these conflicts, they are, in, they are, still, in, they are still conflict zones. I don't think the wars are ebbing. I think they are in very different, unique stages. And I think the nature of modern warfare is what blurs the lines between what we now term conflict zones and saying that the wars are essentially ebbing. So that's an attempt to briefly summarize the three conflicts. Interesting. So basically, it's the fact that for those who are harking that the conflict is over, they're simply looking through the Western lens or the, the definitions that, let's say, the World Bank and, and, and famous people who, who discuss about uh, conflict and violence, such as Collier and whatnot, that, oh... Uh, the conflict is, is dissipating uh, because of X, Y, Z, but as you're indicating, that, that is clearly not the case. It's just got more, it's become more nuanced. 
Of course, and I think the biggest issue with modern-day warfare, or, or indeed modern-day uh, geopolitics in the region, is that we seem to not be able to distinguish between defending a principle and saving human lives. We seem to believe that principles and saving human lives uh, are the same thing, whereas in reality they're not. I mean, let's take, for example, in Yemen, and let's ask some very pertinent questions with regards uh, to Yemen. Do we believe in democracy and democratic values? Yes, of course we do. Do we believe that all parties agreeing on a government is a democratic process? Yes, we do. Do we believe that government should be changed via elections? Yes, we do. So when all parties have come to an agreement and one party has decided to take up weapons to oust this government that has been agreed by national dialogue, irrespective of what you think about this particular government, this is a clear transgression against a democratic principle. But now we have a humanitarian crisis because we can't discipline this party and push it to respect the national dialogue. So here to save lives, we can make concessions to this party and abandon the democratic process. In this way, we prevent the humanitarian crisis, but we abandon democratic principles and set a dangerous precedent. Or we save the democratic principle by using whatever means necessary to force the party to recognize the national dialogue. Essentially, this means going to war. Now, this goes against the concept of saving lives and preventing a humanitarian crisis. This is the dangerous and dark reality of the world we live in today. This is the catch-22 with regards to Yemen. The belief that there is this ideal solution where we can all come together to a table and discuss, it cannot be applied here in this geopolitics. And this is the reason why we see so much chaos. Because nobody is willing to, as, as we say sometimes when I was growing up in London, to go hard or go home. In other words, to say we're going to defend democratic principle or say we're going to save human lives irrespective of the consequences or the precedents, even if it brings dictatorship, even if it brings uh, a, a, a transgression on democratic values, but we're saving the lives of children. This is what people don't like talking about because it is the harsh reality. Now, as an analyst, it's very easy for me to say these are the dynamics and this is what everybody should consider. But put yourself in the position of, the, of the, the head of the United Nations who has to make these decisions. Put yourself in the position of Europe, for example, which has to decide, should we intervene militarily against the Houthis or should we punish the Saudis and tell them to stop bombing the daylight south of Yemen and allow the Houthis essentially to succeed in their coup? If you're the US, for example, do you get involved on the side of the Houthis or the Saudis? These decisions are very difficult to take and I feel currently at least in the analysis of these conflicts and indeed what pushes people to say to make statements like you've made is a disregard of the very realities and the catch-22 that a lot of these conflicts find themselves in. So for example Libya, like I won't, I won't go on for too long about this, but for example Libya for example, you have Haftar who has a very powerful army in the east, you have a divided west. You have the West, which is an internationally recognized government, but you have a significant portion of Libyans who agree with what Haftar is doing. And then you have a sizable portion of Libya who don't like either side. How do you reconcile these three parties? Do you simply wait and see who will succeed and, co and conquer the others? Uh, do you go in and make all the parties weak, the way that happened in Bosnia, where the Americans bombed the Serbians, they bombed the Bosnians, they bombed the Croats, forced them all to the table, made this agreement, this Dayton agreement, of which Bosnia seems to be unable to escape from the curses of this agreement and the way it was made in a rush. These are very hard questions. And I feel like sometimes if you come from a humanitarian perspective, you don't care about political dynamics. You just want an end to the war, irrespective of what it means politically. If you are in a political situation, you don't care about humanitarian crisis. You care only about your political expediency. And I feel that there is a lack of appreciation of this. And I think this is why sometimes we have these theories like you presented about war subsiding and the like. Because everybody's looking at it from a different perspective. I think it's, it's a very cruel and unjust world that we live in. But I think we need to start calling things as they are if we want to actually see a genuine solution to these conflicts.
Very interesting, and the fact that just as you've indicated how nuanced they are, and how, and how actually quite perplexing it is, because basically your whole resume has indicated that it is still very much ongoing and a very much a fleshy conflict, and and the, the sides are simply simply not seeing seeing light or day towards it. Now, clearly, as you've indicated, it's a very it's a very uh, confusing and. Um, uh, nuanced situation, but going into the aspect of this notion of investing in conflict, as I've indicated, the International Bank crosshawked it. There have been some mentions of impact investors looking to invest in sectors where humanitarian aid is failing or there's difficulties during conflict. So the question is, looking at this and considering the idea of investment during conflict, can this actually work? I mean, based upon everything you've just mentioned, it, it's kind of making it a bit dim to think that it could. But can this actually work? And and can there be, or can this actually be considered an indicator of supporting a regime if you start investing during uh, during a conflict, like say Syria? I think that's a very good question. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, he's not my favorite individual in the world, but Rockefeller said when there's blood on the streets, there's money to be made. Why? Because the market is suddenly wide open. I think with regards to, I mean, if we take Syria, for example, Syria, this, the infrastructure has been demolished. It's in dire need of investment. And the reality is that whoever goes in first stands to benefit quite a lot because there's so much work to be done. Of course, the Syrian government itself might not have enough money to fund these projects or fund these infrastructure. But I do think that for the Russians, for the US, indeed for Europe, there is much benefit for them politically and economically to see stability uh, in Syria. I think with regards, even if we discuss on the war on terrorism, there is much to be said for impact investing and in these conflict zones. And I'll put it quite bluntly. Some of the interviews that I've done uh, across the region with people who uh, tend to take up arms with some of these organizations some of these terrorist organizations, they all have the same rhetoric. Many of, them, many of them say, we don't actually believe in the ideology. But they say, look, I, I'm, I'm not making a living. I'm living poor. I'm not able to fund for my family. For example, in Tunisia, in, in, in Gasserin, in Shambi, some of the people who fight with these terrorist organizations that the Tunisian government are struggling with, they're quite blunt. They say, look, the government gives me nothing. I'm sitting in a cafe all day long. I'm unemployed. I'm 40 years old. I've been unemployed for 15 years. These guys came along and they said, we'll give you 400 dinars to hold a gun and go sit in the mountains. It's an easy, it's a no-brainer for me. I'll take the 400 dinars and I'll go sit with them. I don't care what the ideology is or whatnot, but I'm here. People next to me are committing suicide because of the economic crisis and I'll take the money. When you provide economic opportunities for the people in these regions, and let's, let's remember that in a conflict, we have this belief that every area is a conflict zone, but often it's not the case. There are some cities and some infrastructure that is demolished, but let's remember in Syria there are still millions of civilians still there. In Libya there are still millions of civilians still there. In Yemen there are millions of civilians still there who wake up every day, leave their homes and try to go and make a living. I think the absence of impact investing only increases the sense of depression and sense of hopelessness within society. That only increases domestic instability. That only prevents uh, any uh, government or any regime from actually finding some sort of solution for the people. And this is why I actually tend to try to encourage people to invest in conflict zones. The dynamics are, of course, very different. Many people believe that if we invest in conflict zones, I can't guarantee the security of my projects or the like or that kind of thing. Or as you said, I might be seen as supporting the regime. But the reality is that if we actually look at what actually goes on in the ground, and let's take, uh, into a, let's, uh, take as an example some of these more shrewd investors who invest with everybody. Uh, there is a really good film I used to watch when I was younger, although it doesn't quite fall into impact investment, inv impact investment uh, Lord of War by Nicolas Cage, where he basically sells arms to everybody. 
So essentially, uh, he was friends with, with all different sides of the party. Now, I'm not saying that businesses should be invested with every single party. But what I do think is that if you want to encourage parties to uh, come to the negotiating table, a lot of it does depend on making them lose popular support. How do you make them lose popular support? By ensuring that people have an alternative way of life. Many people join these organizations like the Houthis, like Haftar, uh, like the groups that fought against Bashar al-Assad because of lack of opportunity. But when these organizations are suddenly investing and you suddenly see these projects that are taking place, whether it's humanitarian projects, whether it's construction of new markets, construction of shopping malls, whether it's construction of new supply routes, construction of new factories uh, to provide basic uh, essentials and basic necessities, suddenly the pool from which these people are recruiting soldiers is no longer there. Even if a group later comes on and takes over that factory and forces you to sell only to that group, for example, you're still providing some sort of infrastructure within that particular country. What it is, however, is that the risks are different. Many companies are worried about the risks, worried about the con con constant fluctuations. But a shrewd businessman actually stands to gain much uh, from these conflict zones that so desperately need investment. The problem is it's a catch-22. If you don't invest, you continue to create a haven through which terrorism can thrive. But if you do invest, you do supply the basic groundwork and basic framework that actually results in a lack of pool of soldiers for these groups to recruit from, which means that militarily it becomes untenable for these parties to continue, which technically means that they are forced to the table, which means that this popular pressure essentially can bring about uh, a quicker process uh, to end the war. It's a long process, obviously. I've, I've oversimplified it, but it shows that there is actually more benefits to investing in conflict zones than there are negatives. That's particularly brilliant to hear, and that puts a lot into my mind in regards to have there been perhaps more heightened impact investment, let's say in Syria, perhaps that could have also diminished, well, Syria or let's say within neighboring countries, I could think particularly in northern Lebanon, where, there, where there, there's a high unemployment and youth, just as you've indicating, feeling more, more opportunities, let's say, with particular groups, because they say simply, we'll give you money, then going, then simply going, working at a job in a cafe, which becomes impossible because in many's eyes, oh, it's been taken by Syrian refugees and so on and so forth. So if, going back to Syria, I feel that this could have been an opportunity to help uh, people, let's say, either remove themselves from from joining, let's say, Daesh or even particularly Iraq, or but then again, that's a bit nuanced as well because also Daesh receives so much as well from 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 the West and uh, and so on and so forth. But it's a very interesting mention in the fact that economic empowerment can lead towards sustainable peace in that aspect. So. Given that the fact that this there is this chance that it can reduce the potential of conflict or during conflict can help reduce the longevity of it, how does one then go about approaching it? You know, there are clearly, as you've indicated, within the case of Yemen and Libya, there are multiple actors there. Who does one engage with and how does one go about engaging it? Because clearly there's the notion that during a conflict, the state is a mess, government is not as it is, it's not like you can just email the, the assistant of uh, the minister of XYZ and suddenly everything is done. I mean, it's, it, it's a whole different ballgame. How should one then approach then um, the potential of conducting uh, investment within a conflict zone and um, who should be the actors they should consider in engaging with? 
I think one of the, the, the biggest criticisms I have of the world today is that we compartmentalize everything. In other words, we believe that everything should either be humanitarian or political or economic, but that they cannot be or, or it is wrong to assume that they can be all three altogether. I'll explain in, in detail what I mean. So let's take, for example, some case studies of humanitarian uh, aid or, or economic empowerment that have taken place uh, and their consequences. Let's take southern Lebanon, for example. Why are Hezbollah so strong in Lebanon? Why, despite their involvement in Syria, why despite the criticism from much of the people in the region, why despite the fact that they are declared a terrorist organization by groups uh, around the world, uh, why are they still, uh, why do they still enjoy such a powerful base in southern Lebanon? The story is very simple. Speak to anybody in southern Lebanon, they will tell you that when the government abandoned us southerners, when it didn't invest in us, when it didn't provide us with economic opportunity, Hezbollah came in, they built us hospitals, they built us schools, they gave us jobs, they gave, they economically empowered us, and as a result, we do not bite the hand that feeds us. Hezbollah essentially established such a powerful grounding that nobody can oust it, whether it's Israel or, or the like. One of the reasons that we're struggling to see investment in Syria at the moment is because the bigger parties are trying to battle for influence. So, for example, the UAE hosted a, a conference to uh, discuss investment uh, in Syria. However, the Russians have a lot of objections as to who should be the one to invest in Syria. Russia doesn't have the money to invest heavily in, in Syrian infrastructure. It knows that the Gulf countries do. But it fears that if the Gulf countries invest in Syria, then naturally, because they are U.S. allies, it means that the U.S. will have the greater influence in Syria. These are the political dynamics in which uh, aid and investment in these countries uh, have to operate in. Even in Venezuela, we can see the politicization of aid. There's talk about Donald Trump trying, trying to bring aid into Venezuela and Maduro preventing it because he sees it as a means by which the Americans are egging on the Venezuelan people against him. It's all politicized. One of the, you mentioned that, for example, we can't just send an email to the government. That is very true. Investors that seek to invest in these conflict zones need to have a very clear understanding of the political dynamics. They need to understand that the ordinary rules of how to get things done quite simply don't apply. In other words, you're going there for a good intention, you're going there to empower people, but suddenly you need to know who the local power actors are, you need to know who the tribal leaders are, you need to know who is the person that when you get in trouble in the absence of the rule of law, who can make sure that your project is safe from outside interference? How can you make your project uh, mutually, uh, mutual interest to the different warring factions that are in the region. So, for example, an oil pipeline that's been built or a hospital that's been, let's take a hospital, not oil pipeline, a hospital that's been built in a particular city through which all of the fighters are able to heal themselves in, for example. That hospital is unlikely to be uh, uh, seen as a casualty during the war because all parties have a shared interest in it. The people there have a shared interest in it. The people will prevent it from becoming politicized. This is not necessarily a go-by-the-book kind of game. This is a game by which you've understood the political dynamics, you've positioned yourself as an essential investor, you've positioned yourself above the warring factions, and you've essentially said to them, guys, you guys continue fighting. I'm here just to build my hospital and ensure that everybody has access to healthcare, because at the moment, they're dying and they're dying of malnutrition. Even when it comes to, for example, food supplies, consumer goods, you could go in there and take consumer goods. The issue is that, for example, the Houthis, they levied a tax on that, which made it harder for the people uh, to buy those particular consumer goods. If you're able to negotiate with the local actors, you can actually find much room with which to expand. The problem is, however, when some of these companies, particularly from the West, the reason, let's put it this way, the reason why the Chinese thrive is because they don't necessarily play by the book. Here, I'm not talking about bribery or things that are illegal. I'm talking quite simply about realpolitik. The Chinese know who to talk to, when to talk to them. They don't necessarily have to engage in illegal activity. And even with the Western companies, they don't have to engage in illegal activity. I think what, what hinders investment 
is not the fact that it's a conflict zone. It's a lack of knowledge. It's a clear ignorance. It's the people with which they rely on for analysis. So, for example, when you're talking about, yes, the conflicts uh, seem to be ebbing away, that suggests to me that analysis on the conflicts is very much uh, inaccurate. People don't take the time to seriously investigate what is actually going on. Or if they do, they do it from one particular angle instead of exploring the potential opportunities that are there. Why would Bashar al-Assad refuse a hospital in Damascus being built today or in eastern Ghouta? Why would the rebels resist a similar project taking place? Why would they resist the opening of a consumer goods for with cheap food that people can access in order to sustain their nutrition? Now, you imagine the people that no longer have to worry about healthcare and no longer worry, have to worry about food. Do we think that Hayat Tahrir al-Sham the group that is considered a terrorist organization that has seized territories around Idlib, do we think that it's, it will be able to recruit the thousands it has recruited if these people are able to have access to basic facilities? We have to ask these very pertinent questions. And this is why I think, to regards to your question, how should somebody go about it? You need to understand the dynamics. Once you have a far clearer picture in front of you of those dynamics, not just of the entire conflict, but also of the local area you want to invest in. So, for example, in Aden, in Aden you have the different warring factions, the different competing factions with government. You might think, yes, I need to go to President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi and I need to go to the Prime Minister and the like. But it may be all you have to do is go speak to the Chief of Police and tell him, look, I'm bringing in some healthcare supplies. All I need is to make sure that there is security in this particular area. He will speak to all the parties and say, guys, this benefits all of us. Let's protect it. This isn't actually idealistic. This is actually reality. What is politics at the end of the day? Politics is the science of human relations. Politics is the interaction between human beings. No more and no less. Everybody has needs. Everybody has interests. I think the problem with impact investors at this moment in time is they fail to recognize this. It's not about uh, how can I make myself useful to everybody. It's about how can I maximize profits? How can I have the most impact? Instead of compartmentalizing everything, there is a way in which we can be very shrewd about this in terms of how we invest. And these areas are badly in need of it. I think one of the key reasons the key drivers of this conflict is poverty. The key drivers of this conflict is economic crisis. Why did these people take to the streets? Why did they protest against the governments? Why did thousands take to the streets to protest fuel hikes? Because they're suffering, because they don't have access to basic needs. We sit on our high chairs in London or in Washington or in, or in Rome or in, or in Paris and we say, oh, these poor guys and the like, but we don't know what it feels like to live without access to healthcare, without access to nutrition, the very basic necessities. Somebody whose belly is full doesn't go to the mountains to fight and risk what he has. The reality is that the impact investors have such a critical role that they can play. And this is the role that the United Nations is actually trying to encourage. But because they're is a lack of knowledge because there is a lack of understanding of these conflicts this is what prevents them from actually entering and i do think that there needs to be a genuine sincerity in the coverage of these conflicts by genuine sincerity i mean not sitting on the fence and looking at everything in this very arrogantly objective way in which all parties are wrong but looking at it from the perspective of all parties might have their flaws but what caused this conflict and what do we need to do directly to solve this conflict? When impact investors understand that, then they will be able to negotiate the dynamics. They will be able to hedge their risks from being with the regime and being with these different rebel organizations. I think this is the reality. Impact investors need to think that the first primary uh, aim should be how can I be of interest to all of the parties? Can my project be equally appealing to the regime and to the rebel forces? This is how you protect your investment in these conflict zones. And it's a lot of food for thought that you've just indicated, a lot of food of thought, and it really highlights a gap that's currently within both the media that is being received and also the, the, the issue of the Western lens and how everything is viewed by the Western lens and is not 
properly analyzing the dynamics because precisely as you said, those with the full bellies are not going to go fight and they're not going to, they're, they're perfectly fine. And going into, let's say, the Sudanese conflict, well, not conflict, but the, the current tension that is arising in Khartoum, why are many people going to the street? It's because the rising of bread crisis, uh, or bread, excuse me, um, which is allowing even the doctors and the middle class to go in the street because now they're feeling the punch. It's precisely as you've indicated, and, and clearly this is... Uh, going back into the notion of impact investment, this is where they can really become an action player and a game changer and an agent for change, sustainable change, by really investing in this very humanitarian um, scheme. So I would like to ask just one final question regarding impact investment. So you've highlighted a lot of the potential that it can bring and, and we're both in accordance in the fact that economic empowerment can lead to sustainable peace and, and there's a, and there's a role impact investment can play during conflict but what can be the danger of impact investing during conflict you know you've highlighted the particular ignorance one can have when they go into a region for understanding the dynamics understanding the nuances of the area but but what other or what other dangers would that be for an impact investor during conflict if they don't do their due diligence, for example? There are very serious uh, dangers. Uh, I think first and foremost, you can be found guilty of uh, aiding and abetting uh, rebel movements or, or you finding your goods uh, in the hands of terrorist organizations if you're not careful. Uh, these are the, the very re this is the very uh, reality of the situation. When I'm talking about conflict zones, it's true that there are far more positives than there are negatives, but the negatives are also huge. You're treading a very thin line. In other words, if you're not careful, you may find your label in the hands of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the others, and then you're left having to explain to Congress or having to explain to Parliament how your goods ended up in their hands. You may find yourself that prolonging the conflict, actually. So, for example, when you're providing food aid to the Houthis, and instead of them giving it to their people, they give it to their own soldiers in order to sustain their military capabilities, you may find yourself uh, in that situation. Uh, this is the reason why I say that it has to be very effective due diligence. You have to understand the political dynamics. You don't have to understand the political dynamics to get involved. You need to understand the political dynamics to protect the investment once it's actually in there. Everybody will be happy to receive your money, but how do you protect it? You protect it by being on the ball with developments and essentially by making sure that you understand the different fluctuations and the different waves and the different tides. It sounds tiring, but the reality is even from a profit perspective, and I know this sounds very crude, but this is a very lucrative industry actually, impact investing in conflict zones, because everybody is so scared of it. If you are a shrewd operator and you're on top of events as they are unfolding, you are on top of the dynamics, you're on top of the political dynamics, you pin yourself as a key and vital partner in that particular country. You become a tool later on in terms of promoting a potential democratic process. You become an ally of that government and ensure that you are involved in rebuilding this country in order to make sure that it doesn't fall into war again. When you're a country, when you're a company that has provided food, that has provided medicinal facilities, that has provided all different types of aid, you become valuable. And because not many people are investing there, you also find yourselves in somewhat of a almost semi-monopoly on these particular industries. Why? Because the government relies on you to help build these industries from new. So when you're talking about doing a duty to a people, doing a, your global duty as a global citizen in order to build these particular countries, if you're on the ball with your due diligence, you will be able to protect your investment, you will be able to protect your reputation, you will, but if you don't do your due diligence, then you stand to suffer quite badly. And I think the, these consequences are what prevent people from actually taking the risk, actually investing deeply. Because the reality is, despite all this numerous saturation in the market of analysts who analyze these conflicts and give these incredible assessments, the reality is that 
none of them are convincing enough to say to a company or to convince a company to say, look, this analysis is actually quite sound. Is actually quite sound. I can rely on this and put my money where my mouth is and I will follow this analysis and I will go and invest my money in. The, rea- the fact that impact investors aren't going into these conflict zones shows the lack of quality analysis that there is in the market because there is not enough that eases the fears of these investors. So there are great risks. It is very true. But my issue is that don't look necessarily look at the risks. Look what happens if you don't go in. If you don't go in, you neglect a duty. You neglect an opportunity to uh, shorten uh, conflicts. You neglect an opportunity to help people who are quite simply not economically empowered. And I think genuinely, as I said, a person whose belly is full does not go to the mountains to fight. The reason why these these groups have a pool of soldiers to draw on is because they draw on the poor. These poor do not buy, buy into terrorist ideologies. There is a very bad, skewed analysis on terrorism in the world. People do not, many, most of the people who fight with these organizations do not wholly believe in the ideology. They do it because they don't have an alternative. They sit in their homes, in the cafes, somebody comes to them and says to them, you know what, this is actually like, this is actually uh, great, 400 dinars to go fight in Shambi, why not? And there's actually a case study, I'll finish with this, um, I was listening to a, 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 somebody who had done a case study in Yemen, uh, where in Al-Qaeda seized territories. And uh, she made a very interesting point. She said that when Al-Qaeda first came in, uh, nobody actually complained. So because it was the government wasn't really ruling it, uh, so the situation was bad. When Al-Qaeda came, it's not like the situation changed. She said the only reason Al-Qaeda were kicked out of that territory was not because they implemented the hudud punishments, so chopping off of the hands and whipping and the like. They were kicked out because they tried to ban gut, which is what they smoke in the side of their mouths. So essentially, when they tried to ban the gut, the people said, look, we have no money, we have no job prospects, no nothing, and you're taking away our pastime. We'll never allow it. And they nearly kicked Al-Qaeda out. Al-Qaeda essentially reversed the ban afterwards, despite the fact that they believe it's forbidden. In other words, the people actually have a lot of power, a lot of strength, and in these territories where we see terrorist organizations, it is not an indication that people believe in them. These impact investors have the possibility to make great change. It needs bravery, it needs diligence, and it needs somebody to understand the various different uh, dynamics. And this is, uh, at the end of the day, this is, thing, this is the job that the likes of the, the, that I do, that other people do, that yourself do when you're trying to do these podcasts to tell people, look, you have a duty to fulfill this. So I think with regards to impact investors, the risks are high, but the benefit to humanity is great. And I do think they have a responsibility to do that. And I think that's a, a fantastic way to really end this, to really show that the fact that impact investors really do have uh, a role to play in regards to not just in humanitarian relief, but really in, in sustainable development that leads to a social impact that can make a difference. And thank you so much for indicating that case study because it can also really uh, fill the minds of our listeners to understand that indeed what we consider as terrorists and what we consider as those who decide to get involved with it it's much more nuanced than one indicates and it goes back to the belief that you know we we naturally have that economic empowerment is really an avenue towards sustainable peace uh sammy it's been a real pleasure to have you really on the global podcast and for those listening if you are interested in understanding more about uh, can we invest during conflict, I do recommend you listen to episode six of the Global Podcast, which will go into detail. Sammy, again, thank you once again. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, director of Pax Second Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechnglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O 
www.pal.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!